Welcome to the Art Podcast. Our show features conversations with Canadian recording artists. In each episode, our host, Tressa Levasseur, explores how background, influences, and personal journey shape the creative process. Every show features two original songs by the guest artist, so stick around to hear some great music. Today's episode features the great Canadian troubadour Stephen Fearing from his home in Victoria, BC. It's funny that you should bring up a memory of us both being in Memphis, Tennessee, because I remember also very clearly the first time that I met you. And it was at Home County in London, Ontario. And I was playing right before Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. And you all came in and uh, Tom said something very rude to me immediately <laughs> therefore casting himself as the reggie of the outfit and then of course colin who who is he but uh jughead so i guess that leaves you as archie of the trio or maybe i don't know are you is that who you are what's your cast well, definitely tom is jughead because we always um we always said that you can't have the Archies without the Jughead beat, and that would refer to Tom. But, um, oh, Lord, what am I in Blacking the Rodeo Kings? I don't know. Somehow I ended up, I always think of that um, Steeler's Wheel song, Stuck in the Middle with You. Clowns to the left, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. It does feel that way sometimes. And I never could figure out how, with these two outsized personalities, I ended up, you know, in the star circle in the middle. Um, I still can't figure that out, but that's where I am. I, I think maybe if either of them were in the middle, then the whole thing would implode because neither of them could handle it if the other right, one was in the right. middle. <laughs> but they can handle me being in the middle. <laughs> Which is interesting because that actually places you at center stage. It does. That's yeah, it's what um Jim Cuddy refers to as the star circle. Okay, okay. That's because he's jealous <laughs> and wants to be in your band. Okay. Let's begin, shall we? Yeah. That was just the preamble. Yep. Um what is so we're gonna we're gonna dive into we're gonna go way back. Mm-hmm. Oh, what is your first or earliest memory of music in your life? Um, I have a very, very vague memory of pretending that I was a dog, but not just any dog. I was in a marching band. So I was a dog in a marching band, and I was underneath the dining room table marching around, and music was involved. That's my my earliest memory of of music, and when I think about what I ended up doing and and where I am in my life, and sometimes when I'm on stage with Black and the Rodeo Kings, I think about being a marching dog. Why? Why, why do you well, think? Just that because that sometimes I do feel like a bit like a marching dog in that band, but um, it just there, there was a lot of there was a lot of theater involved in that memory. There was a I mean I imagined myself with a big tall hat with a plume on it and. A marching band dog to begin with the whole thing is like obviously as a kid you love being a dog but a marching band dog 
That's really interesting to me. Later in life, I I really seriously contemplated joining the British Navy when I was in, in high school, and I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go into the British Navy. And in my mind, I was in the Navy band. So this idea of being somehow in a kind of a band situation has been around since I was two, three. I don't even remember what what age I was with that memory, but... It's clearly been imprinted from an early age. We listened to a lot of a lot of classical music when I was a kid. My father, uh, who's passed away, he was an organist and an English teacher, and there's a whole sort of generation of Vancouver musicians, because he taught in Vancouver, that uh, Claire Lawrence, people of that era and that ilk, um, probably went through his music class and remember him fondly. Um, so there was a lot of organ music, there was a lot of piano, classical music, and occasionally there was bands like Blood, Sweat, and Tears and that kind of thing, because he wanted a little diversity. Um, my mother's uh, is a trained soprano, so there were a lot of chorale of choir things and harpsichord recitals and all that stuff. When I was a kid, I, I did a lot of that. I was sort of like the classical music parents kid and you know sitting in a chair in the back <laughs> pre-cell phones pre-anything just sitting there you know playing with my fingers listening to all of this amazing music um, which they really would have liked me to go into and instead I went into folk music <laughs> but did they okay so this is a wonderful segue because I want to talk about the, the the culture of music in your family which it sounds like it was pretty much full classical immersion. Did they have a vision for you? Like Stephen's going to be a violinist or a flautist. Like, did they have an? I think they thought I was going to be a pianist. So I had piano lessons really young and um, all of that, you know, um, it, that continued up into my early teens. And then finally, so what happened was my parents split when I was six. So my mother continued with this uh, sort of trajectory. And then at some point she said, you know, do you want to keep doing this? And I said, no, <laughs> I hated the piano. I wish I kept it up now, just like they said. Like, uh, yeah, if I could play piano and guitar, whew. but uh, in, instead I quit. And uh, it was only a little later when my mother um, and my stepfather got together, he had an old gut string guitar hanging on the wall in his house, which is now hanging on the wall in my office, the same one. And uh, I pulled it off the wall and started trying to figure out how to play Truck Driving Man by Johnny Cash. And then, um, you know, uh, Paul Simon and Gordon Lightfoot and Willie P. Bennett songs. That was sort of... Those those were the things I was trying to figure out how to play these bloody things. They were so complicated. Um, but I made the leap from the piano to the guitar. They wanted me to be a pianist. And just as a footnote to all this, I, I really thought that my whole family's musical cultural history was classical symphonic chorale music and found out later that no my grandfather was a vaudeville singer i didn't know that at the time because he'd quit um at long before i was born and also uh my my grandmother who i never met on my mother's side um played music for silent movies so there's this kind of music i mean she played banjo and guitar and so i come by it honestly 
And in your grandfather's vaudeville act, there was a tiny little marching dog. <laughs> the plumed hat. Amazing. Yeah. That's, what, yeah. do, do you think that was hidden from you? Or like, how, why did you never know that? Well, I think that because... Because my parents fled the old country. So when they were, I mean, my parents married when my mother was 22, I think. And then they basically fled um, England and Ireland. And they, uh, my father got a job teaching in the new world in, in British Columbia. You know, teachers needed and that kind of thing. So he, he came out, they came out here in the 50s and uh, they left lasted exactly six months and then fled back to England going, oh my God, we can't handle that. And then they got back to England and this is all done before flights. They were all doing this in ships. So they leave England, they go to Canada, their luggage comes behind them slowly. They get to Canada, realize that they've made a mistake, go back to England. Their luggage still hasn't arrived. <laughs> and then it follows them back to England. And then they realize, no, we were right. So they go back to Canada. So it took them a while to figure out where they wanted to be, but they clearly didn't want to be in England or Ireland. On my mother's side, it's a little more complicated because her parents died really young. So she lost her connection with her family. With my father, he kind of deliberately got the hell out of there. So I just really didn't have any connection to family f uh, until much later. How did it feel to discover that your um, grandfather was a vaudeville performer and your grandmother played for silent movies? Oh, it's amazing. It sort of gives context to things, you know? It really does, because you think, what am I doing if my father was an organist? This is so far from that kind of world and my mother's world of choir singing and sopranos and my aunt is an opera singer. Like, I'm, I'm so not any of those things. So I didn't really understand how the, the acorn could fall so far from the tree. And then I find out, ah, the vaudeville singing. And I find out that, you know, there's, there's a lot of this sort of music in, in, the, in the household. And also, I think there's been misinformation. Um, the idea that classical music is over here in an ivory tower. You know, back in the day, that music was much more the pop music of the day. It was much more the entertainment of the day. And, uh, you know, Handel's Messiah was, was first played in Dublin in a church. And it would have been a coup for them to have that piece of music played there first. And everybody would have come up because it was sort of the popular music. And so I think that as you get farther away from that kind of era, you tend to think of it as being far away and, and forget that the people that were involved in that music were involved in the active sort of mainstream music of their time. Yeah. Well, you forget that. It's Mozart that composed Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Uh -huh. That the, these melodies, these, these people are pop stars and their melodies have transcended time yeah. and space and geography because they're amazing melodies. In the same way, my, my, my daughter's not a good example, but her generation would look at the kind of music that I'm playing and think, oh my God, it's so, you know, it's so far removed from any kind of mainstream. It must be some kind of weird eclectic thing. And so if you were to go into music now, you wouldn't necessarily relate and say, well, you know, clearly there's a thread, a link between that kind of music and this, but obviously there is. So you got to get a little older and then you start to see how they're all connected. You can't see the matrix until you zoom out. Yeah. Totally. I completely agree. Okay. I get the idea that the, the part of the playlist of your childhood is like this class, heavy classical organ music, choir music. What other, what other tunes are on that 
childhood playlist? Like, what were you listening to? What were your pals listening to? Yeah, well, later. So my my personal theory is that we musicians are much more influenced by our parents' record collection and church music. I would add that in too, unless you grew up, you know, you're, you're the anomaly that grew up with like atheist parents. But most of us grew up with parents that either believe strongly in the church or just went because everybody else did. But nonetheless, you're exposed every Sunday to, you know, all things bright and beautiful and all that music. And and so um, I was raised Presbyterian, which is a particular style of music. And, and uh, yeah, that totally influenced me. Those chord changes, the way the, all that stuff. Don't you think those chord changes influenced the Beatles? Because yeah. I know they did. I know they did. Yeah. I hear that music in the Beatles. I, on the other hand, I'll confess here now, in true Catholic fashion, I'm confessing to you. I am a product of the folk mass of the 70s, Catholic folk mass. And I it's never real. saw one of those. I always wanted to go, but living in Ireland, it was kind of like, no, no Protestants, please. Thank you. What about, so you took piano. Your teacher, I can only imagine, when you did not have a, a deep connection to each other. Was there anybody that helped you learn to play guitar, or was that complete solo journey? No, I, I had a I had a very a couple of cool things happen to me. So my grandfather, who was the vaudeville singer, when my folks split, I lost all touch with them because they sided in the divorce with my father, who was their only son and their only child, and uh, so I never saw him again. Which was really, I mean, I saw him once, but kind of heartbreaking when I think about it. Again, you know, you zoom out and you look at things, and it's sort of staggering that grandparents could let their three grandchildren go. So we left Canada, we moved to Ireland, and I had very little contact with them after that ever again. But when my grandfather died, he left me 250 bucks in his will, a significant sum of money for a 16-year-old boy living in Dublin. A 15? I would have been 15 then when he passed away. And I agonized. What was I going to do with this money? And it was either a motorcycle or a guitar. And I always you know, tell the punchline that I bought the Yamaha guitar, but actually it wasn't, it wasn't a Yamaha. It was some, it was some weird Japanese knockoff. I don't know what it was. It was supposed to look like a, 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 a Gibson dove, I think, but it was like a classical, uh, sorry, a steel string guitar from somewhere in, in Japan covered in like an inch of lacquer. And, uh, it was my beloved guitar because by then I had transitioned from playing Romanza and, you know, that sort of style of guitar. I had transitioned into uh, trying to figure out Gordon Lightfoot and, and I had hung the classical guitar that I first fell in love with back up on the wall and was now looking to play Homeward Bound and uh, the Canadian Railroad Trilogy in my dreams. Mm. Uh, those kinds of songs. And you needed a steel string for that, right? So that was that was the opening for me was getting that, that money from my grandfather it allowed me to go into a music store in Dublin called McCullough Piggott's, and I bought that guitar, and the rest is history, really. I That sort of up and running. All my peers, this is, we're talking 79, 78, my peers were all sort of jumping into punk music, and, and that was what was happening. And I was at home listening to Charlie Rich behind closed doors and Simon and Garfunkel bookends and Gordon Lightfoot's greatest hits. And and I was going down that road, and I, I really haven't stopped since. Right. That's the road I went down when I went to university. I fell heavy into folk music from the 60s, late 60s, and it was like 1993. Was it the guitar that brought you in? No, it was a lyric. It was a lyric. It was a lyric. Huh. 
It was the lyrics. Like it was, it, and the intent of the song uh-huh. it felt, it felt right to me. The, the, that double live album of Bruce Coburn's. Oh yeah. I, I pretty much listened to that. Hajira. Oh yeah. Blue, best of Simon and Garfunkel. My whole first yeah. year of university. None of my pals. They were all listening to like Pearl Jam. Yeah. <laughs> Guns and Roses. Yeah. My buddies, it was the clash and the damned and the stranglers. And I was listening to behind closed doors, which was now it's very cool to say that I may add, but then it was not cool. It was like, death if i'd mentioned that i was in school i would have had my ass kicked um i i just don't want to leave this era but uh we must move along in this hero's journey okay of uh this interview but i am curious before we go (laughs) about like moving back to ireland like you're basically moving back to like one of the most fertile fields of songwriting Mm -hmm. around Contemporary and eternal songwriting. Yeah. How did your move back to Ireland influence what you do now? Well, for my mom, it was moving back. For me, it was moving away because I was born in, in Canada and, and I, I kind of related. I mean, I was only, I was so young, I was six. So how much can you relate to anything? But to answer your question, I think it, I think it, it affected things quite profoundly, possibly in the most, the most obvious way would just be that the amount of artists that sort of walk around on a day-to-day basis in Ireland is, you know, some of them are, are what we lovingly call piss artists um, in that they're kind of like... Um, um, cowboys or scammers or not scammers that's the wrong word but they're jack the lad kind of you know but it, but it's done artfully it's 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 there's a particular type of language and 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 humor and the closest we come in this country is newfoundland and it's pretty close of course. and it's that kind of culture where people take an artistic outlook on life and they dress artistically in some ways, and they they conduct themselves in a way that might be considered eccentric elsewhere. But there, it's it's the norm. They say the average Irish person has a daily working vocabulary of five thousand words, and the average North American is twenty five hundred. And partly because a lot of Irish people grow up speaking English, but the Irish is so close to the surface Gaelic that there's there's words that just don't exist here. Calling somebody a gobshite is a particular type of uh, insult that, that I don't hear very often over here. I have a favorite. It's Baxter's favorite. Begrudgery. Begrudgery. <laughs> it's a great word. Yeah. Right? When someone something good happens to someone and you feel a sense of begrudgery. Yeah, so I just I just think it really affected me in, in in a very intangible way because the time when you're starting to become conscious, say late pre early teens, uh, late preteen, thirteen, fourteen, where you're kind of becoming conscious in that sense, where you're sort of taking your head up and looking around, and noticing your sister's record collection and noticing all the things in the house is is at the time when you're trying to distance yourself from your parents' setup and what I associated with school, Irish, 
enforced Gaelic lessons, all that stuff. I wanted nothing to do with Ireland at that time, really. I was enamored with North America, and I had the you know, the, the uh, stars and stripes sewn on my jean jacket like I was uh, in Easy Rider, and it was all about that kind of thing. And it's only later that you look back and realize how much your parents' record collection influenced you, how much church music influenced you, how much the culture around you influenced you and profoundly so. And so growing up in Ireland, as opposed to growing up in West Van, massive, massive influence for sure. Of course. Well, and it's part, it's, weirdly, it's part of the contemporary Irish experience to cast your eyes to North America. Yes, very much so. Like that, that was very much of the era that you were there. Everybody was leaving because there was nothing there for us. Of course. It was, it was poverty. It was like Newfoundland in the 60s. You know, it was the, the, the it was just a, the 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 ability to pursue something. Yeah, we were all getting out. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm switching chapters here. I'm I'm switching the order because I do want to talk about. I want to go into your artistic practice, and I want to talk about how old were you when you wrote and performed the first song that you wrote? Paint me a picture, Stephen Fearing. I'm going to say I'm 18, somewhere in there, 18 and a half. I'm on a Greyhound bus and I'm going from Minneapolis to Vancouver. I had moved to Minneapolis from Ireland when I finished high school. So I must have been 18 and a half because I left home after finishing my leaving cert 17. So I'm on a Greyhound bus. I've made the leap from playing uh, Paul Simon and Gordon Lightfoot in my bedroom in Ireland to performing in uh, a place called The Malt Shop in Minneapolis, which is sort of a well-known little greasy spoon. And I washed the dishes by day. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I did four sets a night, you know, 45 on, 15 off. And I learned this huge amount of material because I was under the impression that you weren't supposed to repeat songs from set to set or even from night to night. So I had probably uh, eight hours worth of music <laughs> stored up of songs that I learned from all these different acts. And, and I found myself on the Greyhound bus going to Canada to visit with my father and my sisters who were living up in northern BC at the time. And I'm on this Greyhound bus and I'm thinking, well, this is it. You know, I'm, I have to write a song because that's what you do when you're a musician and you're on a Greyhound bus. You have to write a song about it, homeward bound. Of course, especially if you listen to Simon and Garfunkel. Any number. Of Are you on the New Jersey Turnpike? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was the hardest goddamn thing I've ever done in my life because I was comparing myself to everything, to that eight hours, 12 hours worth of material that were all the great writers, all the great writers, all those songs that you want to learn and, and, and do your version of, you know, when you've got a gig like that. And so, and it came up so pathetically short. And there was, I had no rhyming dictionaries and no thesauruses. So I'm sitting on this Greyhound bus for hours with a notebook. I didn't, couldn't even play my guitar. I was doing it in my head, which is really hard. Honestly, it was the most, it was the most mind-numbingly difficult thing I've ever done. I liken it to doing GST forms. Like it was, it was terrifying. And um, I got a song out of it and it was called Rocky Mountain Side. And in that song... <laughs> <laughs> this is the really funny part. In that song were all the themes that I've ever covered since. <laughs> 
traveling, saying goodbye to people, being in love. Like it was all in there. It was, it was very, very prophetic. And I look back, I could, if my life depended on it, or perhaps if my loved one's life depended on it, I could probably play a verse of that song. But even in that, I know that the themes that I've been kind of fixated on ever since, particularly travel, um, they were there in that song. And so, you know, it really did sort of set me on a, on a, on a, on a, uh, a road, a path. Um, what guides you in your songwriting now versus that, that teen on a, on a Greyhound? And believe me, I've written a song on a Greyhound, as, as we all have. Um, but what guides you now? How do you choose which tendrils to attach to? I am now at a point where I really, I mean, sometimes I get song ideas, um, often melodic ideas more than lyric ideas. Uh, I was always one to sweat it over the lyric, and the melody would be something that uh, just came to me without really thinking about it. And the lyric was always sort of trying to take an emotion and, and squeeze it out through some little portal in my third eye as opposed to just whoosh, which a melody is for me. And so very difficult. And so uh, I spent inordinately more time on lyric and I would always focus on the lyric. And, 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 and I think it's kind of a singer-songwriterly thing to be sort of clever lyrics and double entendres and magical mystical and I kind of crossed a threshold when I started thinking of myself as a songwriter than a singer-songwriter because a singer-songwriter to me is a genre as opposed to a description and a songwriter is genreless and since I was born in North America I grew up in Ireland and I've been living all over the place since I I don't have a root really. I don't have a strong root. I mean, Irish, Presbyterian, Canadian, it's, it doesn't sort of smack of a strong tradition. And I don't have one. And my, my family doesn't have a strong musical tradition other than the sort of vague classical kind of academic sort of thing. So, well, it's interesting because you talk about, you talk about that song, Rockin' Outside, and it being like a repository for the themes that you've followed through your whole career of writing, which are, and I quote, travel, saying goodbye to people (laughs) and love love, in all of its various permutations and shifts. All of those are rootlessness Mm -hmm. in, in a way, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like none of those are rooted. They're all about a a thrusting forward as opposed to a Mm -hmm. settling in. So that makes sense to me that you're identifying that. Not to get all therapy on you, but well, no, but I mean, it, you know what? It's that's uh, that's got to be an element that's got to be part of this conversation. If we're going to talk about music, then therapy <laughs> and and uh, my emotional state and all that is absolutely part and parcel of it. So, where do I go for music? I go there. Just the method of getting there now is different, and that is that I. I actually feel really comfortable and most of what I've put out for the last, I'm going to say, three records um, of my own and also the Blackie records has been... um has come from a place of not knowing where I was going to begin with. So literally, okay, I'm going to write a song, grab the guitar, and just start. 
And that's, it's kind of the difference between, you know, write an essay about this or make up an essay about anything you want. I'm at the and make it up about anything you want place. And what happens is I think I end up going the same place, but it's a little easier because I don't start with this forced idea and then kind of have to claw my way through it to get to what my subconscious wanted to write about to begin with. I'm, I'm trying to just create this space and without being too West coast on you, just create the space and then let the subconscious come through because that's where it all comes from. I love it. I, I love hearing this about you. I, I, I love this portal into something uh, <laughs> that's a, maybe a little more tender or, um, you know, we meet each other on the road and it's, you're out on the road, you kind of got your bulletproof vest on. Uh, but to converse like this is a true gift. I agree. So speaking of being on the road, we've run into each other many times yes. at many festivals and at many contacts. And I, we've probably played a workshop together. Yes, probably have. I was, I, I won't describe why I don't remember most of the odds, but <laughs> I don't remember most of them. Uh, so I don't remember any workshop that we've played together, but tell me about your relationship with the festival workshop, like getting up on stage with a bunch of folks, like what, what is that for you? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Do you have a, a stellar moment? Yeah. I'm just, you know, I can't find it. It would be rude and you wouldn't be able to see it anyway, but I have on my phone, I got sent a picture recently of me on stage with John Prine, Lucinda Williams with Gerf Morlocks on guitar and Shirley Eichhardt, right? Those were the participants in the workshop. And, and you. <laughs> and I was the host. I was the host. And I was so, I mean, I had a ponytail down to the small of my back, like I was in my sort of Fabio phase. And uh, I was so scared because, I mean, Lucinda was, it's funny to see a picture of her. Um, she was sort of, she was so young and blonde. And uh, Prine was, had aviator shades on and kind of a black sort of a, a, a formal jacket and a pair of jeans. He smelled great. He smelled like tobacco and Old Spice. And and Gerf Morlicks was just kind of mad. Um, and Shirley Eichardt, I didn't even know who she was. I actually had the gall to say to her after the workshop, man, I really love your music. Have you put out any albums? <laughs> And she she was very sweet. She didn't say, go away, you idiot. She said, yes, I, I actually have. She didn't mention anything about let's give him something to talk about and having a smash worldwide hit with Bonnie Raitt. You know, I had no idea who these people were. I just was, except for Prine, I was kind of terrified and young. And I realized that I've sort of have had that experience so much because that was sort of that's that's the beauty of the Canadian workshop. Um, festival kind of template is to put young players in with seasoned players. And so as a young player, you have this hands-on, like they're right there. It's not watching from a distance. It's literally on stage so you can watch their moves you can smell the fear. You can watch how they deal with a shitty PA system and how they deal with everything. And you learn. And so... Well, it's younger than not. I mean, I was at Vancouver Island a couple summers ago and played the gospel Sunday morning. And the band was the Muscle Shoals All-Stars. Like, oh my God. I just about died. And it was a grand... And I was on a grant. Oh, my God. You know... <laughs> With an 18-piece band. Wow. 
Wow. Right? Wow. Like I it is the Canadian workshop is a magical thing. It really is. It is. It's it's I haven't done one for I mean obviously none of us have done one for a long time, but this is the point in the interview where we must bring up the term pale stale male. <laughs> hey, talk to me. I don't know that term. Well, it's something I learned recently and it was just a funny way of sort of I'm a 57-year-old white guy and there was a time in this fair land when we were kind of like the you know we were front and center we 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 were closing down the main stage god damn it we were we were contenders and and it was a little too much and there was too many of us and we were nobody was having enough imagination to say well maybe we should program some women or some people of color or anything other than these white guys all the time enough with the white guys and so now the the worm has turned and uh the arrogant worm the arrogant worm is <laughs> despite the fact that i feel like i'm on top of my game like i never have been and 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 that I've got this absolutely beautiful brand new Manzer guitar. Um, it really is beautiful. Which is a stunner, and that's one of the silver linings of COVID. But we don't have to go into that. Please don't show my husband. Okay, it's um, it's not exactly a, a great time, and a, this is a wineless comment. Okay, there's no whining in this comment at all. But it's not a great time to be a white male middle-aged singer-songwriter, because it's not our moment, and that's okay, but it means that I don't have a lot of experience or a lot of um, interaction at, at festival workshops right now, even before COVID <laughs> shut everything down. So it's been a while. Um, so a lot of my experience with those workshops, I hearken back to when I was kind of green and young and scared shitless, as opposed to the confident older man that I am now. <laughs> would you like a biscuit? <laughs> I surely would. Um, I want to ask you about that, if you don't mind, d mm -mm. delving a little further into that, because I liken this shift in some way. Like, I'm a woman, so I have an intersection that puts me a little further from the hub sure. of the merry-go-round spinning wheel. If you're at the hub, mm -hmm. like right in the center, uh -huh. and you are thrown off of it, the velocity that you're at <laughs> is quite high compared to someone who's been on the edge the whole time. Yeah. Who's probably fallen right. off a couple of times, who who can easily get back to the where they were. Yeah. It's a, it's a it's just a different like dizziness or like internal thing. What fills that? vacuum now for a songwriter like you who is in like a, a point a point in your arc where you're letting this you're com confident comfortable enough in yourself to let the songs come in from the great mystery into you you know that, that it's about opening who do you want to reach now that you're not going to be on that center stage. I, I may, it, it, it is true that I am a middle-aged, middle-class white male, but I'm a folk musician. So, you know, I'm not exactly in the center of things. Um, even within the folk world, for a while there, I kind of came at the end of the party. There was a feeling that the party had just happened, you know, the the sort of the late 70s, 80s scene in, at the, the Canadian folk festivals, that sort of time. I arrived at the end of that and, 
you know, I arrived at a time when, in music, when people were saying the guitar, the guitar's dead, darling. It's keyboards, you know. And they, those, do you remember those awful keyboards that had a neck? Guitars, guitars. <laughs> those were. I mean, my my bandmate Colin Linden was told straight faced. To eye to eye by a record executive that it was that the guitar was done, and uh, he had no future, and so you know that was that wasn't exactly a good time to show up as a singer songwriter. But nonetheless, there was still a holdover, and there was still an infrastructure in place with the CBC, etc., etc., etc. That there was a great deal of privilege that I had no idea was coming my way. I just walked into it, and there it was. And now that you sort of see it in, in for what it was and realize that that's no longer there, that it's time for other people to have have, have some, you know, that cake. Um, my my The thing that I can do is use what I have because I was lucky enough. I was lucky enough to build an audience at that time. Um, and I was able to create an audience for myself right across the country, which is how I survive. Um, it, it's, 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 it's there, it's tangible. I play shows, people come, it's, it's nothing huge, but it is there. And, and I'm internally grateful for it. And I can use this little small four by four plywood stage that I have, um, to amplify other things that need to be amplified. So on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, if I see that Adrian Sutherland's got a new single out, I can push that out to my fans because I think they'd like it and because it's the right thing to do. And that's what I can do. What about engaging with your fans directly in the, in the places that they are? So like, I understand that I, I understand the use of your platform to, it's like, it's like moving out of the spotlight. So the light yeah. can shine on someone else. That, that is an elegant move. It's the move of, someone who grew up in the seventies and, and you're at a certain point in your life, right? Like where the, you don't need that heat on your face in the same way. But what about community engagement? Here we are. My delightful title. <laughs> Part three. Part three. Um, what do you do like in community songwriting stuff or like workshops with, who do you, who do you like, who's your, what's your favorite thing to do in that vein of things? I love projecting my energy and my love and my absolute sense of mystery about this songwriting process and, and trying to translate that to people. Cause I don't think that you can, I mean, you can teach technique. You can teach, I can go and reach over to my bookshelf and pull out rhyming dictionaries and, and, uh, slang dictionaries and all that stuff. The, 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 um, the cabinet making kind of skills. This is how you use a plane. This is what kind of chisel you need. That kind of skills. Yeah. But how you have taste, how you decide what your voice is going to be, I have no idea how to teach that. I don't even know if I know how to learn that. I just know, having done my 100,000 hours, that I love it. I'm excited by it still. And so my favorite thing to do is to get in front of a bunch of people who really want to learn something. They, they're there for the next, either it's a five-hour workshop or a five-day workshop. And, uh, and I can help them with that. I can help them get past that awful feeling that I had when I was stuck on the Greyhound trying to write that song. And it was just like, my God, how do you get from here to four strong wins? I have no idea. But I can, I can help with getting, finding 
finding the joy in it. And that's what really tickles my fancy is, is lighting people up and seeing them get excited and kind of get past. Because often at the songwriting workshop, you get people that have kind of been writing the same song for like 20 years because they went into work at the, the co-op or they work at whatever it is that they're doing. And then music has always been a passion, but on the side. And so they kind of dabble at it and then they get rebuffed because until you, you know, you kind of get over that hump, you sort of keep coming up against the same thing. And the other part of it that I love is when you're in one of those workshops and a young songwriter shows up and they just blow you away because <laughs> they're so far down the road already. And they're like, I don't know what to do. And they play the song as like, Oh my God, don't do anything. Just um, let me help you not break anything. Let me just encourage you. What song has blown you away recently? Probably the, the one that blew me away in a way that I was so not expecting. And it's not that recent, but um, William Prince. Oh, yeah. I I was out visiting Scott Nolan. Now, Scott and I worked on my last record together, so we worked on that in 2019. So this would have been in 2018. I had visited him in his little song shop in Winnipeg, and um, I was driving to play a gig in Boys of Ain, and he said, oh, here's an album I've been working on with this guy named William Prince, and it was his first release, and... Uh, I just was knocked out by it. His, the quality of his voice, just the whole thing. It was kind of hard to put my finger on it. The single was really beautiful, but it was, it, it was him. It was the sound he was making, everything that went with it. It, it felt to me, it, his voice reminds me of a Charlie Rich or that kind of voice. It's like an old country voice. It, it's sort of effortlessly authentic and rich and warm, and it just opens a door. You know, it's interesting because I feel like William Prince offers, as, as a songwriter and as a voice, the thing that you've identified as not being your thing. I feel like when I listen to him, he's so rooted in, in himself. Yeah. It's so coming from something very solid and earth, like it's not searching in the sky or binoculars. Like it's a different thing. Yeah, yeah. But but, uh, it's such a fundamental uh, bell ringing, pure kind of tone. Yeah, well, so I'm looking for the thing that turns me on and what I'm always trying to find myself is something authentic. Um, I love, uh, there's a book called um, Big Magic. By By Elizabeth Gilbert. Yes. I know the one and the ideas are floating around and we just catch them when the time is right. And and you don't have to feel like it was your idea because these ideas have lives of their own. They're floating around and we might catch them at the same time because they're here. They're being born right now. And she, she talks about, I mean, I've heard it before, but she states very eloquently the idea that really original is not even possible anymore. I mean, I don't know if it ever was because if you look certainly in the writing world, like, Go back to Shakespeare and go, well, all those themes that we're still writing about, they're done already. You know, they've already been done and probably were before Shakespeare, too, because he certainly wasn't the first. So what is it? So it's authenticity and that's your own thing. And that's what I'm looking for is how to authentically put for what I'm feeling. And when I hear it in other people, that's what really excites me. And I really heard it in in, in um, William Prince's music. Um, it's it's And of course, I'm not very good at this game. I never can think of people's names. And I'm hopeless in a jam. Stephen, play a song. And I'm just like, I can't think of a single song. Not one. Is it from church? 
If it's a church song, I can play it. I know it when I hear it. When I hear somebody that is being authentic, I'm, I'm part of this thing called Global Music Match, which actually Nicole got me into. Bless her heart. Um, it's it's uh, intense and a lot of work, but there's a songwriter named Andrea Kerwin from Australia, and she just she um, sent out a song um, for us all to participate in, and it was just like, it's so beautiful and authentically her, and her voice sounds like her. Doesn't sound like anybody else. Doesn't sound like she's copying anybody or heavily influenced by anybody she told me she's heavily influenced by tracy chapman i don't really hear it it doesn't really matter i get a sense of her authentically that's what i am drawn to um scott merritt who's a good old friend of mine a producer i admire a great deal he's he he always said do i believe you as the singer as the songwriter and if it's not believable, then go back to the writing board. That's so interesting because I ha- I come at the thing, not to talk about myself, but I come at the thing from the same place, but from the performance perspective. Uh-huh. Because I went to theater school for university and we had a singing teacher. She just died this year. Her name's Peggy Redmond. And she would, you would get up to sing your Broadway song. And the whole deal was, if you didn't mean it, she'd just send you back to sit down. You had to like connect. And people have asked me, like, how did you get to where you were in your career? And I'm like, well, you know, the song's sure, like a songwriting, fine. But it's actually the performance. It's authenticity Mm -hmm. and performance that has always been the thing that never phoned it in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Never phoned that in because it's such an honor to be in front of people. Yeah. And when 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 you are at that place where you start to feel shut down by, you know, maybe it's a very hostile situation or it's just so, whatever reason... It's terrible because you're, I find it, it's it's like hauling boulders up a hill. It's the hardest work ever because you're, you're holding yourself back because it's not safe to emote. It's, it, to me, it's like, that's the natural state of things. And the hard thing is to get that onto tape. That's where I, it's, I start to, when I get into a studio, I start to get um, kind of um, enamored of the sound of my own voice. And I start to focus on that. And it's like... Kryptonite! Yeah, anytime I'm in the studio with, with good players, and Colin Linden, actually, i got to give him credit. He was the one that sort of said, take that out of the picture. We want, it, we want to move so fast that you don't have time to think about that shit because it just messes you up. It just gets in the way. And you may end up with a recording that has significant flaws on it, but the chances of catching that kind of lightning in a bottle are much greater if you're not worrying about your technique. I, I, I pause it. The incredible recording of Aretha Franklin playing Dr. Feelgood and that crazy keyboard flam that happens right before the second bridge. It's terrible. I don't know that. I will have to go and listen to it. We edited out. It's like a flam between the rhythm section and her on the keyboard and they kept it and it's like it goes <laughs> and then it lands and it's so perfect. And of course they kept it. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Because there's no there's no fader for vibe. Yep. Absolutely. And I mean, the suck button. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, my, my buddy, um, John Wynott, great producer, engineer. And he, we made a record together um, years ago. And anytime I was getting to, 
he would say, okay, well, I'm going to have to teach you this lesson again. And he'd just put a Beatles track up on and he'd say, and now the left channel. And he'd turn off the right channel. We'd be only listening to the left channel. And you can hear poorly phrased his lyrics, out of tune stuff, weird bad edits, like really bad edits where it sort of goes, and it's all there, but we've just gotten so used to it that we don't hear it anymore. What we hear is the spirit of it, and it's powerful. The spirit was so strong with the, the spirit was strong with those ones. Um, but you know what I mean? Like they were moving fast and uh, and they were having a ball and a couple of mistakes eh, would just, you know, would just sort of smudge over them. They didn't even try and they couldn't edit them out. They didn't have the technology. So we had to live with it because that's the vibe we wanted. So away we go. So he would just keep pointing out to me these records that I hold uh, as sort of the benchmark. They're full of flaws and that's okay. <laughs> I have loved this hour with you me too very much i have i have loved to get to know you in this way i want to ask you only one silly question from fun questions okay. to end with um, okay and i'm making it up i'm adding a little extra to it imagine that there's a tinder what's what's that between artists and bookers Okay, okay, like a, a it's dating, like a dating app. Okay, okay. Yeah, swipe left, swipe right. And what are you gonna put on Tinder? What what is what is your your like best friend? What is what is Archie gonna put on your Tinder profile to get those bookers to stop and and select you? Oh my god. God. Do you hate this metaphor? Because I bet you do. No, it's just, it's getting perilously close to writing my own bio, which honestly, I'd rather, as as Michael Rycraft would say, relieve the pressure in my eyeball with a hot needle. Um, just sorry, you may want to erase that. That's quite disgusting. No, no, I like it. But Keep it, Tim. What would I put in there? Well, earlier you said you said something about how you were happy that to find out this tender side of me because I, I I'm I'm intrigued by the idea that I walk around with you know Kevlar on and I'm I'm curious do I actually come across that way? That's interesting to me. I feel like I'm probably a little funnier and a little more tender and sweet than maybe my uh, my my on the road persona <laughs> would leave you lead you to believe. And certainly as I get older. And I get more comfortable with with all the things that happen as you get older. Um, that side of me is coming out more and more because I don't give a shit anymore. I really don't. I want to make my living at this because I love it so much. And I can't imagine making my living at anything else. And I put all the time into it. So God damn it, this is how it's going to go. I want to surround myself with people who are, really are authentic and are kind. And... Um, and I want to continue exploring the creative side. I just, you know, that's where I want to go for the rest of my life. So however best I can do that and whoever will um, allow me to do that, that's, that's, um, that's who I want to be in, in the band with. That's, that's who I want on my Tinder. Uh-huh. You're your bander. I, I don't even know what that app would be. I, I love that. I've, I, that was an excellent non-bio bio. Okay. And I think just to, just to assuage you, I, when I was talking about the Kevlar, I was really talking about all of us. Yeah. Like yeah. The, the environment that we put ourselves in, the exhaustion, the like night after night, the yeah. meeting so many people, the like fan sweaty armpit on your shoulder, like all of the things, all the things that you only get to know you. I can only get to know you so much over a plate of beans at Hillside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's only so much. 
And this hour is so has been so rare, maybe up until this pandemic. But, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say there's something that's happened that I hope is stays on the table, which is I think as musicians, we've all felt how desperate some of these times have been. And what makes it even harder and, and at the same time easier in some ways is it's it's not just me. You know, I've seen the I've seen the Roseanne Cash live stream from her couch with her iPhone, you know, like everybody really has been in certainly not necessarily the same boat, but the same storm. And that surely should be um, something that brings us closer because this kind of thing has been happening quite a bit. Um, I've had I've, I have quite strong relationships with with a group of musicians who I've never met physically and yet we're now talking about making a record together and trying to tour together. And it's bizarre. I mean, we've never even met each other. We've just been in Zoom calls and we've played music together and we feel very close to each other. And I, I really love that. And it's something I, I've always been drawn to the, the camaraderie and the sort of the musicians. I really love musicians. They're, they're really great people. <laughs> Thank you. And you. Until we see each other in person again. In person, hey. <laughs> Outside the world is crying. Breaks my heart in two. Cause no one is alive. Better walk in someone else's shoes we don't really see each other We don't even trust the truth It's the old divide and conquer Eye for an eye, a tooth for ones who never felt the blues You won't find the road to love till you walk in someone else's shoes 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 Walk in someone else's shoes
for listening to the ARC podcast. If you'd like to know more about today's guest, please take a look at our show notes. Our producer and engineer is Tim Frazier of Murdoch Entertainment. Our host is Tressa Levasseur. Thanks to the Canada Council for the Arts for making this podcast possible. And thanks to you for tuning in. Until I learned to see the things you say I'm with her eye Christine, my rodeo queen She got a heart full of soul and a soul full of gasoline My woman's like a tea bag, you throw her in the pot But you never know how strong she gets until the water's hot Christine, my rodeo queen She got a heart full of soul, a soul full of gasoline I tell you why Enough caffeine to make a dead man fly When I think about the gals that I knew Before she got the real fireworks Not the third world war Christine 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 She got a heart full of soul A soul full of gasoline Yeah.